Down at the bottom of the world we call Azeroth sits a place. A vast desert of shifting sands, slicing winds, and steep rock faces that seem to rise to the very sky. It's a place that only the boldest of adventurers ever venture. Past the never-ending bronze landscape of Tanneris, and through the death trap, titan petri dish experiment known as the Crater of Ungoro. It's also a place that is the most alien, least Azeroth-like location on this terra firma, as massive insectoid limbs claw at the sky and huge nests of buzzing sounds reverberate across the sands like a warning to anyone nearby. Silithus is a fascinating zone, both as part of the lore of Warcraft, but also as a former endgame zone in Vanilla WoW that served both as the hub for the game's third set of raid content, but also as the site of a massive undertaking never before seen in an MMO, let alone video games. A quest chain taking place in real time, requiring the effort and work of all players to unlock further reaches of its campaign, and to eventually give players access to the ruins and temple of Ankiraj, the 20 and 40 man raids that sat behind the massive scarab wall and ruins of what remains of a titan facility, a prison, and a former hub of the Black Empire. If you've been following along episode by episode with us since summer, you recognize a lot of the words and nouns I just mentioned. A lot of people assume that the architecture of the Kiraji is original work, but it's actually the opposite, as the Egyptian-infused motif of this sentient bug race is actually a look into what the original Black Empire looked like. The vast cities of the old god Nazoth who once ruled the southern regions of pre-sundering, pre-evolutionary Kalimdor. You see this reflected in the Nilotha raid as the dream realm of Nilatha begins to come into contact with the reality of Azeroth and attempts to overlay what the Black Empire used to look like over top our world of Warcraft. This is all to say that Silithus, the ruins and temple of Ankiraj, and nearby Oldham are all connective tissue to the origins of Azeroth, the work of the Titans, and the domain of perhaps the most well-known of the old gods, Cthun, creator of the Silithid, and Kiraji. Your friends will abandon you. At this point, the War of the Shifting Sands and the On Kiraj War is literal history if you've been playing World of Warcraft long enough. The event brought about in Patch 1.9 of Vanilla WoW was a massive undertaking, a gated raid event and server-wide storyline requiring players on both sides of the Alliance Horde War to work together, farm materials, do quests, kill enemies, and focus attention on Silithus, all in order to unlock these two raids. And this was done on a server-by-server -server basis, so some servers worked faster than others to unlock the secrets of AQ 20 and 40. All of it is just an example of the mystique and aura of original WoW that is the peak of gaming lore and hardcore gaming legend. So you're forgiven if you know very little about this massive event that combines the histories of the Night Elves, the Titans, the Bronze Dragonflight, the Silithid, Druids, and more. Today, on Essence of Azeroth, we bang a gong once more and delve into the mysteries hidden by the Shifting Sands as we discuss the Ankiraj War, the boss fights of AQ 20 and 40, and the one title and mount you'll probably never see anyone have in-game, 
like ever. Never. I've only seen one. This is Essence of Azeroth. Today's episode is brought to you by the patronage of our subscribers over on Patreon, including Brooke, Otto, Melissa, Bergen, and Kelly. Their support keeps the lights on and the caffeine flowing, especially for this episode. It is our longest one to date. So consider giving to the podcast over on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Essence of Azeroth, where you'll get access to our Discord, an invite to our guild on Asgalor, and my undying devotion for supporting my passion project to bring lore from WoW to one and all. Thank you, and on with the show. You are already dead. I read from the prophecy of Cthune, as written by the Kiraji prophet Sekrom, a prophecy that portends a cataclysm. In the time before time, when the world was still in its infancy, a battle between a titan and a being of unimaginable evil and power raged on this very soil. The prophecy is unclear about whether or not the titan was vanquished in this battle, but it illustrates that a titan fell. An old god had also fallen. Or so it was thought. For millennia, this being lay dormant beneath the world, biding its time. From its prison, it waited for the exact moment at which to strike back at those that it would seem harmed. The land of eternal starlight, Kalimdor, was a nurturing mother to all its creatures. The magic of the Well of Eternity permeated the land and empowered the multitude of flora and fauna that would make the world their home. From this magical ether were born the Silithid. It was through the Silithid that the brooding old god would reach an attempt to sunder the world that it once held in its unmerciful grasp. The old god would create avatars from the Silithid in its own image. These avatars were known as the Kiraji, sentient and with purpose, the Kiraji would name their creator, Cthune was born. For many thousands of years, the Kiraji worked feverishly to build a force capable of laying waste to the world that would betray their god. The great fortress city of Ankiraj was created to house their growing armies and prepare for the coming of Cthulhu. So says the great prophet Sekrom.
Your courage will fail. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One of the early things that confused me when I started first playing World of Warcraft was the quest givers around all of the major capital cities asking for donations of goods. Wool, cloth, ore, etc, etc. The game didn't explain it, nor what it was connected to, and being a new player that didn't understand the darn thing that was going on, I assumed I needed to do that stuff for some kind of a reward. So I started hoarding it all, forgetting any crafting or gathering levels I could have been getting from using the massive amount of cloth, ore, and anything else I could get my hands on. Lo and behold, when I turned that stuff in just to get boxes of... stuff? Scarabs? Random colored items with no description or use? And gear I could never hope to use. Cool. I love that for me. And so, started my fascination with Silithus and Encourage. I had to get to the bottom of this weird mystery I found myself in as a fledgling priest, and talk about some kind of war that already appeared to be long over. It's one of the strange things about playing World of Warcraft for the first time, and based on when you started playing, kind of being thrown into the whole storylines that have ran their course kind of thing but the breadcrumbs are just there, floating around. A lot of that has been fixed since Cataclysm took all of Vanilla WoW and either removed or retrofitted much of its content. One of the areas that saw the most of that change is Silithus, a former max-level zone found in southern Kalimdor and sequestered off by a skyscraper mountain range and a desert lined with massive bug legs, tornado-like swarms of insects, and a giant wall at its very southern edge. And while the core of Silithus remains intact, the zone has actually changed massively across multiple patches. First with Cataclysm and the Twilight Hammer cult ran by Cho'Gall moving in, which we will talk about later, and once again in Legion when, in a last effort to kill the world soul of Azeroth, the burning legion leader Sargeras threw his massive sword into the fleshy earth of Azeroth, piercing the planet and leaving this massive sword still stuck in Silithus even now. It would be easy to assume that Silithus and its barren, unforgiving nature is due to the Sundering or something else, but the easiest explanation for this massive desert is that the Black Empire of the Old Gods began here and Silithus is the site of many, many, many major wars that occurred all before the Sundering even took place. As we mentioned, this Egyptian-styled architecture 
that is the signature of the Karaji is actually the design and structure of the original Black Empire, of which the Old Gods controlled. It wasn't until the defeat of the Black Empire by the Titan-forged armies of nearby Oldham that the eldritch horrors of Azeroth were locked away, including Cthun, the originator of the Kiraji. Your heart will explode. I think that's also why I find the ruins and temple of Ankiraj fascinating. It's a former Black Empire city turned into a Titanforged facility to imprison Cthun, and then once more turned into a Kiraji hive. Layers upon layers, like a disgusting onion. And hey, raise a hand if you're tired of each episode of Essence of Azeroth, starting with the Titans and the Old Gods and yada yada yada. I know I sound like I'm repeating myself, but so many things begin with the Titans and their efforts to create life, all for the purposes of enriching the world soul of Azeroth so that it may one day become the Chosen One Savior, Titan of Legend. But enough about that. We're here to talk about two raids. The 20-man Ruins of Ankiraj and its bigger, uglier, meaner older brother, the Temple of Ankiraj, a 40-man dungeon and central hub for patch 1.9 of an entire quest chain, world bosses, and more. AQ 20 and 40 are fascinating to me, in that 20 is sort of the modern-day equivalent of a catch-up dungeon. Its loot table was meant as onboarding or jumping on point for players who hadn't raided during the Blackwing Lair era, or were looking to find a way to get their gear together before tackling AQ-40. It's heavily rumored that AQ-20 was originally meant to be part one of AQ-40, with the end leading right into the underground prison of C'Thun. You can somewhat see this when the daytime setting changes to a starry night upon beating the final boss of AQ-20, Osirian the Unscarred. However, before jumping into Ankiraj, we need to know its lore and its background. Especially in this case, as initially the Scarab Wall of Silithus was sealed tight, and the only way to get it open was a server-wide effort between Alliance and Horde players to reconstruct an ancient bronze dragonflight relic and right the wrong of a war known as the War of the Shifting Sands. While this isn't an episode about the Bronze Dragonflight, much of what occurs in Silithus and with AQ directly involves these controllers of the timeline. As we mentioned last episode, each Dragonflight that ascended after the defeat of Galakrond was given the essence and power of a Titan leader in order to serve Azeroth as a consort and aspect with Nazdormu of the Bronze Flight obtaining the spark of time travel from Amon Thul, the High Father of the Titan Pantheon. The job of the aloof and somewhat secluded Bronze Flight is simple. Protect the timeline at all costs. And for better or worse, this is what the Flight has always done. The best example of doing the hard work to protect what has already occurred is seen in the Caverns of Time dungeon The Culling of Stratholme from Wrath of the Lich King, 
as players are charged by Chromie of the Bronze Flight to protect a maddened Arthas in his quest to rid his, the former Eastern Kingdom's capital of Stratholme of the growing Scourge threat. This is sort of like the eternal question of time travel and going back to kill baby Hitler and something like that. The Bronze Flight have a simple but difficult job, but it's also this job that leads to the splintering of the Bronze Flight and the creation of their greatest enemies, the Infinite Dragonflight. An offshoot of bronze dragons who thought that they should be correcting the mistakes of time and changing things for the better not realizing that they were being corrupted by the old gods in the process. The Bronze Flight watch over the timeline from their home in nearby Tanneris, the Caverns of Time, avoiding getting involved with the paltry problems of mortals and choosing to remain impartial. This is why the brood of Nazdormu and their faction rep starts off as hostile, by the way. But before the Bronze Flight gets involved in Silithus, we join the Cenarian Circle of the Night Elves, who venture into Silithus with their leader, Thandral St Staghelm, a druid who was present for the founding of the Cenarian Circle and involved in attempting to cleanse the Emerald Dream of its nightmare infestation. The Circle's goal was simple, to cultivate the harsh deserts of Silithus and revitalize it as a lush forest. However, it was discovered that the Kiraji forces of Cthune had slowly been leaking out of the former Titan prison of Ankiraj, with the Kiraji taking over the sands of Silithus and pushing back against this new night elf expedition that was in the area. Fandral Staghelm and his son Valston took to war, fighting back the Kiraji forces at every turn and attempting to push the bug menace back into their prison. Staghelm was a creative, effective general with no equal, so much so that he earned a name among the Kiraji elite, the Hand of Earth. The Kiraji hierarchy felt like they were losing the war, with the twin emperors Velcor and Vecnalash refusing to accept that their only option was a war of attrition and tiring the immortal night elves out. And so the twin imps ordered their top general, Rajax, to find a weakness in the Hand of Earth and turn the battle. And they did. Staghelm's son. Luring Fandral's son out with a diversionary attack on Southwind Village, Rajax captured Valston and killed his entire army, all before marching the son of Staghelm out to the front lines and in broad view of the druid, brutally murdering his son in front of him. Staghelm broke, physically and mentally. The will to fight completely gone from the Night Elf, he retreated his forces back to Tanneris, where the Kiraji followed and just happened to lay siege in the Caverns of Time, bringing the Bronze Flight into this War of the Shifting Sands. This is where the battle changes yet again. The Great Bronze Dragon Anachronos brought together the Dragonflights once more with the combined might of the Aspects helping to push back the Kiraji threat back down into the temple, which brought the Night Elves back into the fight. In fact, only one casualty by the dragons was suffered when the Bronze Dragon Gracacond, no relation to Galakrond, was slain by the aforementioned Osirian the Unscarred with the bones of the dragon becoming a holy site for the Anubisath creations of the Kiraji. This was only one blip, though, in the war effort against the Kiraj, and for the most part, the Kiraj simply couldn't match up to the five dragonflights. And yet, the Kiraji couldn't be beaten completely, 
So Fandral and the Flights devise a new strategy. Lock away the Kiraji army for good. It's here that druid powers and the aspects of the dragons combined their might to create a massive, towering wall of stone and wood, called the Scarab Wall, meant to seal in on Kiraj. Nothing in, nothing out. This gave the Kiraje millennia to rebuild their forces deep underground in the dark. And, as an emergency, Anachronos crafted two artifacts, the Scarab Gong and the Scepter of the Shifting Sands, which when combined could reopen the gates of Ankiraj. The dragons gave the Scepter to Fandral Staghelm, but in a fit of rage and anguish over the entire war and the loss of his son, he broke the Scepter into pieces lost for a thousand years. Eventually, the Kiraje would find ways out of their prison, going deep underground and infecting the lands of Silithus, which is why there are massive hives and creepy bug legs everywhere in the zone. As for Fandral, the loss of his son is something that would continue to haunt him, leading the former High Druid down a path that ends with his corruption and the joining of Fire Lord Ragnaros. A story for another time. The Bronze Flights continued their seclusion, and the Sands of Silithus would wait until World of Warcraft, and the Gates of Ankiraj war effort that would see players delve into the depths of AQ to end the threat of the old god Cthune once and for all. Uh, maybe. You are weak. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Gates of Ankiraj event remains to be one of the most unique things ever in any video game. A real-time collaborative work between entire servers to open up new content, while also being a fiercely contested guild race to be one of the first to open the 20- and 40-man raids of AQ. On paper, it was simple. Have your server contribute all the required cloth, ore, and supplies, numbers veering into the 90,000 unit range, in order to trigger a massive server-wide 10-hour fight in Silithus. Bang the gong with the newly formed Scepter of the Shifting Sands, and open AQ permanently for your server. This also led to the rarest of title and mount of this kind of thing, I guess a collectible in any video game ever almost, with the Scarab Lord title and Black Kiraji battle tank going to players who not only had completed the Scepter, but banged the gong within that 10 hour period, never to be obtainable on that server again. The twist, however, is that becoming a Scepter Bearer essentially meant that one person needed a full-time raiding guild backing them up to complete the stupid long quest chain for tracking down the shards and rebuilding the scepter. 
This 32 quest long chain required support, supplies, and the ability to down Blackwing Lair and Molten Core at least twice, not counting the number of group quests requiring five people to complete. More than anything else, I think this quest is where WoW gained its notoriety as a game for hardcore crazies, especially when you think about the logistics involved. Because remember, in the original event, you couldn't complete these quests at your leisure. The minute another guild on your server banged the gong to start the event, your group only had a 10-hour window to do the same, meaning that if you weren't ready with the quest line, then you weren't going to finish in time. Fun side note, before Kata, Blizzard were opening new player servers to help congestion that hadn't had their AQ gates open yet. And one of the selling points of transferring to these new Baron servers was that you could have a stab at getting the Scarab Lord title, with far less of a requirement of manpower to do so. But keep in mind, it would still take 10-20 people to clear the likes of Molten Core and Blackwing Lair, even in in-game Wrath gear, but the option was there. At long last, this leads us up to AQ 20 and 40, fully opened and awaiting players to venture inside. The lore here is simple. The gates of AQ were opened because adventurers needed to go in and end Cthune once and for all, before the old god's power gathered too much and he becomes unstoppable. We won't be covering every single boss fight in AQ 20 and 40 in detail for the simple fact that a lot of them were very basic encounters. In fact, three of the bosses from AQ40 are completely optional. However, one thing that stands out about both raids is the absolute need for nature resist gear and nature protection potions. Both raids are filthy with poison damage, dots, AoE spells, and more that can shred players if they weren't properly protected. Likewise, balanced druids were absolutely needed as Entangling Roots was basically the only crowd control spell that worked in AQ20 due to it being outdoors. I actually think that the outdoor settings of Ruins of Ankirage is really cool, especially because it was a place where players could mount up, which at the time probably felt like a cheat code during a raid. Some other notable quirks about AQ20 is that it was originally on a three-day dungeon lock, and it used a similar looting system to Zul'Grub in that your reputation level earned the player different rewards. In this case, getting you a ring, cloak, and weapon that all had a set bonus if you used all three. AQ20 was also home to the new spell rank books at the time, which were drops for class-specific spell books that were the only way to get the higher rank spell of certain spells. This is a system that everyone hated, and I'm not sad to see it go. It is also worth noting that AQ is home to some of the butt-ugliest armor in the game, a lot of it is themed to look like bug parts or carapaces, and so there's a lot of sickly green and weirdly shiny armor that to this day looks like an accident or like an early version of armor that was never finished. So, if you want some unique transbogs, I can't recommend AQ enough. And as hunters already know, if you respect into beast mastery, you can definitely go and tame some of those very cool uh, Kiraji bugs. Highly recommend it. Now, because of all that, there are a lot of unique and interesting weapon drops for transmogs in AQ, including two from the first two bosses, Kurinax and our old friend General Rajax. Kurinax is also a great example of unique Kiraji enemy models, with the boss looking like a giant red centipede. 
He's also yet another early example of the mobility-focused type of a boss fight, as players had to run away from sand explosions that would appear on the ground, as not only would it inflict big damage, but also left a lengthy silence on the player. The Rage Axe fight is of note not because of the boss mechanics, but because it requires players to pull an entire big room of nasty trash mobs one after another before the boss could even be encountered. It's a gauntlet-style fight. There's no time to stop in between these pulls either, so the nature of the fight was a real test of players being able to manage their resources and mana so that you had something left in the tank before Rage Axe ever joined the encounter. However, once he does, the general has one hilariously annoying and big ability. Thunder Crash. The attack was a zone-wide AoE that caused massive knockback, deals damage equal to half of the raid's current health, and removes his aggro table. This was a theme for Rajax, as his other major ability was literally to declare via emote that a tank wasn't worth his time, drop aggro, and pick a random person as the, the new aggregate. Now let me tell you, as a tank, there's nothing more maddening than losing aggro automatically and for no reason. The next boss against Boru the Gorger is really cool because it's a mechanic fight in which a random member of the raid will get hard targeted by the boss, requiring them to kite the bug around his arena through the path of eggs that are spread out along the sides. And once Buru is near an egg, the raid needs to blow up said eggs in order to cause damage to Buru with the explosion. Yes, I said explosion. This is a boss fight style used down the line multiple times, including somewhat in Nax Ramus for Gluth, and somewhat in Karazhan for the um, Big Bad Wolf fight. The next fight is against the Anubisath Moam, and once again, it's a quirky mechanic fight where there's one goal. Do not let him reach 100 mana. If that happens, it's an instant wipe, meaning the raid will need to rely on often ignored abilities such as Priest's Mana Burn, Drain Mana from Warlocks, Viper Sting from Hunters to keep the Moam's Mana Bar down. Which I, I think is really cool because back in the day, there were always so many abilities and buttons for every class that you just never used. And Mana Burn was one of them because it was just, it was kind of useless, even in a PvP setting. Mana burn was of no use because it would either get absorbed or it just wouldn't do anything. Lore-wise, this boss is cool because it is the first Anubisath that you face, which are a race created in the stone-forged facilities by the Kiraji to bolster their ranks, and it's of a similar race to our final boss in AQ20, uh, Osiren the Unscarred. Aemis the Hunter is the next boss encounter, and one that will only be targetable by ranged DPS for the first third of the fight, as you fight this menacing giant like wasp surrounded by a big altar and larvas everywhere. And while the ranged DPS are doing this, all of your melee will be dealing with that altar that will teleport a random player to it and paralyze them, which will spawn an ad in the form of a larva that will race to the altar, and if it touches the player, the player is instantly killed and the larva turns into an elite enemy. This is also another fight in which nature resist is sorely needed, as AMS has a damage dot that can stack up to 100 times, and is placed on the hero with the highest threat, so please bring multiple tanks. And finally, at the end of AQ20, 
we come face to face with Assyrian the Unscarred, the fabled Anubisath that was able to succeed where General Rajax failed and brought down a bronze dragon. That's actually why Osirian is the final boss of AQ-20, is because in the canon, the Twin Emperors placed Osirian in charge of Rajax to make sure that he would never fail again, where Rajax had failed to take down any of the black, any of the bronze dragonflight. And I love that a little bit. It's just, it's, it's shade personified. It's, it's bug shade. It's almost like bug snacks. Players will need to send a party member out into the arena to scout for activatable crystals that pop up from the ground against Assyrian, which, when brought into contact with the boss, will remove his buff that gives him a 300% damage buff, as well as making him weak to a specific class of magic for 45 seconds. Because of this, Osirian can actually take a lot of damage quickly, so the tanks needed to spend the first third of the fight gaining a huge aggro lead. And this was also back in the day when rogues were essentially useless in raids. They were squishy, they, they were just damage dealers. They didn't really have much to do. But here, they shine because you were able to send rogues out without getting green the aggro of any of the elemental ads that would spawn or getting caught in anything, and they would be able to find the crystals that you needed to kite Osirian into. After downing the Unscarred One, players could receive the head of the boss, which gave a nice boost in Brood of Nazdormu rep, and a new necklace for their troubles. However, that was simply the appetizer. The main course of Ankiraj lies within the dark temple corridors, and an old god waiting to ruin the day of any raid brave enough to venture down into the dark. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We're only going to be talking about two of the encounters from AQ-40, but said fights might also be two of the most notorious encounters in all of WoW raid history. The Twin Emperors and C'Thun are fights known for being hard and maybe even unbeatable until Blizzard applied multiple hotfixes. So of course, Blizzard added the original version of C'Thun back into the game in WoW Classic for the Season of Mastery mode. Lovely. But before we can talk about C'Thun, we have to get past the twin emperors of the Kiraji Empire, Veklor and Veknalash, leaders of the Kiraji army and one of the most mechanics-laden fights in all of WoW. These two brothers have two life bars with different HP, but shared damage taken in between them. This is important because one brother is immune to magic, while the other couldn't be hurt by melee damage. In addition to this, the twins needed to be physically separated from one another on opposite sides of the room, as if they got too close, they could heal one another for 30,000 health a second, and would do so immediately and often. 
And one small thing to mention, both twins had to be killed at the same time, which is why the two of them having different HP sizes was so difficult to handle. Failure to down them at the exact same time led to a respawn and started the cycle all over again. And if all of that wasn't hard enough, the twins could drop aggro and teleport swap their locations at will. If this sounds like a lot, then uh, yeah, you're right, it's a lot. <laughs> Not only was Twin Imps a fight that required raid teams to separate, but also switch at a moment's notice, but it also demanded players know which boss they're attacking while trusting their tanks to pull the bosses apart and having everyone need an eye on the health bars. In addition to that, you needed multiple tanks because if you lost one, even, it could be a wipe. What's funny about all of the things I'm talking about is that they ended up being singular boss mechanics in Nax Ramus at one point or another, with Thaddeus, Four Horsemen, and more all having some of these mechanics. So the fact that the Twin Imps had all of these things combined into one fight just seems mean. And as a personal anecdote, when they finally performed the stat squish on old things in Cataclysm that allowed uh, old content to finally be soloed, uh, the first thing I did was go to AQ and realized that trying to solo twin imps was still impossible because you couldn't separate them, so they were just healing over and over. It wouldn't be for another two expansions before I had the damage to do it. And I think even then, they might have changed some of the mechanics because at that point, uh, going back and doing old raid content like this was kind of status quo. So they had a lot of requests for people to get things changed so they could actually solo it, which is great because I don't think I would have beaten it otherwise. Now... The Twin Imps might be mean and notorious, but not as mean as Cthulhu, a boss in the early days that was mathematically impossible to defeat due to his stats and numbers and the amount of damage he put out. And that's assuming this deranged old god boss didn't bug out or reset or trap the raid in his stomach, unable to get out, save for a hearthstone or dying. Cthulhu is the original nightmare raid boss, with guilds banging their heads against him for weeks. And funny enough, Cthulhu was down mere hours after the, the hotfixes were finally implemented that allow people to take him down. But it's not like he suddenly became a cakewalk. In the first phase of the fight, the old god is able to zap the entire raid with an eye blast that can deal up to 5 million damage to anyone standing too close to a raid member, because each time the blast chains to another player like Chain Lightning, it gains a 1.5 uh, times damage boost. Players needed to be at least 10 yards apart from any other player, with the tank chugging nature protection potions to mitigate the damage as much as possible. While this is going on, tentacles and eye stalks are spawning, and they're casting mind flay, players are being knocked back and into each other, and ruptures are happening underneath the players sending them into the air. And that's just phase one. After you get his bar down completely, uh, phase 2 starts, and Cthulhu becomes undamageable, requiring the raid to weaken him by players being sucked into the old god's acid-filled stomach. Every 10 seconds, a random player gets in his belly. Eaten players will need to avoid the stomach acid damage debuff and attack the big flesh tentacles that are inside in order to weaken Cthulhu for a short period of time, allowing him to be damaged. Rinse. Repeat. Down boss. Get your tier 2.5 equivalent gear. Now, it's here that I want to close with talking about Cthulhu's lore. 
now non-canonical lore, and the eternal question of whether or not old gods ever actually die. I've mentioned it in passing, but one of the trickier pieces of non-game in-game lore belongs to the DC Comics-published World of Warcraft comic, which ran from 2008 to 2012. With cover art by Jim Lee and written originally by Walter Simonson, the comic was a big darn deal, especially since it was originally pitched as being in canon with WoW and bringing about the untold origin of King Varian Wren, the lost king of Stormwind. And funny enough, the King Wren we see in WoW is exactly the guy from the comic. It's the story of Logash, a human slave forced to fight in the orc gladiator arenas and fighting his way to freedom, alongside the blood elf rogue Valyra Sanguinar and the druid Brol Bearmantle. All of these characters would later appear in-game, starting with Wrath of the Lich King, but the interesting story from the DC comic involves Cthun, Cho'Gall, and the weird half-breed son of Medivh and Garona, and a return to Ankiraj. According to the comics, while the Wrath of the Lich King pre-patch event was going on with Arthas attacking the capitals, Cthune was resurrected by Cho Gaul, now leading the Twilight's hammer and moving the cult in the Sylvus territory to take over the zone as well as the AQ raid. I won't get too into the weeds, but the story sees the Guardian of Tyrus Fall rise once more in the form of Medan, the half-orc, half-human son of Medivh and Garona Half-Orkin who stops Chogal and buries C'Thun seemingly once and for all with the power of the Guardian of Tearsfall. But here's the weird thing. The story isn't canon. Except when it is. You see, this is where Chogal experiences the transformation that we later see in Cataclysm, suddenly huge and spiked out and fully on that old god Kool-Aid. However, WoW writers will attest that while Medan is in the canon... He does exist, he is not, and was never the guardian of Tearsfall. Also to this point, there's evidence showing that Cthune both was never resurrected, but might also never be able to die. After all, it's pointed out multiple times that the old gods live outside the normal cycle of life and death. But to that point, Brand's Bronzebeard said that the defeat of Nazoth was the end of Azeroth from being affected by the corruption of the old gods. So... What is right here? What What's real? I suppose that the joy of authorial intent and word of God is what we look at here, and that it's all true, and it's all false, all at the same time. Cho'Gal was definitely corrupted by C'Thun, and the Twilight Hammer definitely does move into Silithus and take over the Temple of Ankiraj, though not reflected in the game, but there's no sight nor sound of the Son of Bedivh. However, you can never count anything out in WoW lore, and C'Thun is a surprisingly popular villain in the canon, even having an entire Hearthstone set somewhat revolve around him. It's my wish that at some point World of Warcraft goes through yet another cataclysm-like rebuilding of the world, updating it to reflect lore changes and bringing back old zones and characters with the intent that we find C'Thun alive, well, and ready to go once more. Considering that big ol' sword is still buried in Silithus, and Sargeras knew all too well that the old god was buried there, I have to believe that everyone's favorite one-eyed eldritch horror may yet soon rear his ugly head. Thank you for joining me yet again for Essence of Azeroth. Some show news and notes here before we go. We hit over 10,000 total downloads lifetime just this past week, and it was the two-year anniversary of me starting the podcast. 
I cannot say thanks enough to everyone who has checked out an episode or commented or shared or given money or anything else. Thank you, truly. With a new expansion coming, I can't wait to create more content for all of you and for me to enjoy. Yes, I'm that weirdo that listens to my own podcast. And secondly, with the new expansion coming, we have two more episodes until launch. Wild, right? Next time on Essence of Azeroth, we're going to be delving into the mysteries of the Emerald Dream and connect some dots we've been setting up for the last few episodes, talking the betrayal of Fandral Staghelm, the corruption of the Green Dragonflight, the Emerald Nightmare, and why the leader of the Greenflight is coming back to Azeroth. Until next time, remember not to leave dots on C'Thun if you're trying to solo him, because if you're in his stomach, you'll be instantly killed and you'll have to run all the way back inside. It's not fun. Ask me how I know. Take care. You betray your friends. <laughs>